the Maker District podcast. Make Consent features discussion of sexual violence throughout. If you've experienced sexual violence, visit Centrum Sexuelfeld or menaswell.nl for more information. As a queer person, drugs and alcohol have always been part of my social circle. They can make experiences great, but also blur boundaries and make navigating consent harder. There's a correlation between substance use and sexual violence, so booze and chems are a vital part of the consent discussion in our community. Today, I'm joined by three experts. This is Queer Consent. Welcome to Queer Consent. I'm Thomas Garrett Fuller, director of Men as Well, the Dutch organization for male and queer survivors of sexual assault. In this series, we're taking a look through the community as we discuss consent and building a stronger, safer space for everyone. During my journey of building this organization, I've met some truly inspirational people. Join me as we tackle important topics together to get the discussion started. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out the first two episodes. In this episode, we're exploring how the community's keenness for drugs and alcohol affects our community and our ability to navigate sex safely. What do drugs and alcohol do to us? What leads our community to drink and drugs? And how can we navigate them safely and consensually? Today, I'm joined by Michael O'D. Michael is an HIV activist who works at Pornceptual and was previously the National Chemsex Coordinator at the Terence Higgins Trust in London. Leon Knops is trainer, coordinator and chemsex expert at Mainline Harm Reduction Agency here in the Netherlands. And Jeroen van Zanten is founder and chair of Queer and Sober. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out the previous episodes. Thank you so much for coming today to have a, a nice discussion. Thank you yes, for inviting us. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, maybe we can get started with Leon. Hello. Leon, um, good perhaps to discuss uh, a little bit about your work, what you do. Um, Mainline is an organization. We provide the health and rights uh, of people who use drugs. And in my job, I'm focused on chemsex, so I'm working for the department... Uh, target groups and what I do is I offer training to professionals and I'm coaching uh, people who are looking for self-control or want to quit with chemsex. That's what I do. Sounds super interesting. What is chemsex exactly? Uh, chemsex, it's uh, the most broad definition. It's, uh, it's to combine drugs with uh, sex and in most uh, definitions it's focused on the queer community. So uh, to men who have sex with men. Uh, but chemsex uh, also uh, finds place in all different uh, settings, so also between uh, straight people, bisexual people. What is the history of chemsex? Where did it come from? Um, it's coming from London. Uh, David Stewart, he was an activist and he was working in London and he saw more and more gay people who were losing control about uh, the combination of sex and drugs. So he, uh, he made the definition... Uh, specified on uh, three different drugs, uh, crystal meth, GHB and GBL, and methadone. And the Dutch definition is much broader, and the reason is that we, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, people use much more drugs, uh, such as ketamine and new psychoactive substances, such as 3MMC, speed, cocaine, so uh, our definition is much broader. What do you see with your in your work with regards to chemsex? Um, yeah, maybe it's really important to mention that uh, the combination uh, sex and drugs isn't an issue. So a lot of people uh, really enjoy it without any uh, issues. Uh, in my job, we uh, reach out to people who are looking for uh, support because they lost self-control or they want to quit and they don't know how. 
it's possible to engage in chemsex yeah, yeah, sure, safely sure. and healthily. Yeah, yeah, sure, but and then you support people when it com becomes too much. Yeah. Very clear. Um, what does uh, chemsex do with regards consent? Um, yeah, first of all, uh, I have to mention that uh, the people who contact us, they uh, they have to deal with uh, sexual issues and mental issues and what so do they look physical like? issues. Uh, and mostly because they are using typical drugs, uh, typical co combinations of drugs. So we see uh, especially the increase of crystal meth in the Netherlands. Uh, it was already huge in London around 2012, 2014. And a couple of years later, we heard about uh, crystal meth in the Netherlands. And the first group of people who contacted us, they had issues with the use of crystal meth. Uh, about consent, yeah, what we see is that more and more guys are contacting us and, uh, because they want to quit uh, or they had this experience that they, uh, uh, they were victim uh, because of chem sex or they were sexually abused. Um, <clears throat> and mostly guys react something like, okay, it's my own fault because I use drugs. Or they tell me, yeah, it's part of the gay community, so I have to deal with this. And my answer is always, no, this is this is not okay. Uh, even if you are under the influence of drugs, it's really important uh, to uh, focus on consent. Michael, you've also worked on chemsex in London for the Terence Higgins Trust. What are the differences, similarities you see between the UK and uh, and the Netherlands with regards chemsex drug usage within the community? Yeah, I think the similarities are more common than there are differences. You know, I think you spend so many so much time as somebody who runs a service trying to spot the patterns, but ultimately I think some of the only patterns I ever see is with other service providers and what is coming towards us. I think the biggest difference in terms of uh, London and Amsterdam is really what drug is the most popular. I think over here, the popularity of drugs like uh, 4MMC and 3MMC really tower over more traditional campsex drugs like crystal meth or GHB. In London, while GHB used to be the most popular drug in terms of the chemsex scene, crystal meth is just slowly over well actually not slowly at all quite rapidly overtaking it as the most popular and most problematic drug in the chemsex scene so that would have been largely the population that i would have been dealing with when i worked with terence higgins trust and we ran very similar services to mainline like a six-week program and professional training and yeah and like leon said consent is a massive intersection for chemsex i think we find that when it comes to uh issues of sexual violence within the queer men who have sex of men community that uh it disproportionately affects those who are engaging in chemsex we conducted a survey in 2019 alongside buzzfeed news and what we found that out of 2700 gb msm who engage in chemsex three out of five of those have experienced uh sexual assault and then when we looked into that even further, we found that four out of five of those in the chemsex scene knew of somebody else who had been sexually assaulted. So it ends up being like quite a large population of the people that we're dealing with have experienced sexual violence and it becomes part of our work to be able to address that and support them through that process. And like Leon said, much of that is about actually talking through them through the realization that they have experienced sexual violence because there's such a resistance towards this topic in the queer community. Yeah, and there's also a lot of shame. So much it. shame. And so much shame. So what is it that when uh, that you see when people come forward, how long does it take for them, for instance, to 
uh, to say that they've experienced some form of sexual assault? Yeah, my experience is that for some it's the kind of a rock bottom. So it happened to them and they start to realize, okay, this is not my cup of tea. This happened to me. This is really trauma traumatizing. Uh, so I want to quit with it. And other guys, yeah, after a couple of years, they start to talk about it. And then uh, they also start to realize that uh, it's because of shame and guilt that they don't want to talk about it. Or they really think it's part of the chemsex scene. Mm. That's also what we hear really often. Yeah. Very often. Me too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that you hear that like, especially people coming to the Netherlands, they, they just think that it's the normal thing to do to have a lot of drugs, to have sex and go to these parties, these chill parties we have here a lot in Amsterdam. So yeah, that's definitely something we hear a lot in queer and sober as well. Because drugs in the Netherlands are comparably, I think, very easy to get hold of to compared to other other places, perhaps. I think drugs are easy to get wherever you go. Yeah. <laughs> I have the same yeah. idea. Yeah, 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 you know, wherever there's grinder, there's chemsex. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and That's yeah, true. And yeah. there are drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Grinder is drugs. Yeah, don't, yeah. You, don't you worry. <laughs> And so when somebody comes forward and they say that they have uh, a bit of an issue with chemsex and there might be, you know, experiences behind that, what, what kind of uh, support can you give to people? Yeah, the f I think the most important support you can give is that you just listen to their story because uh, it, yeah, it's a kind of coming out for them for mostly of the time. So what I, what I do is just listening and also try to help this person to realize, okay, this is not okay. And uh, so I can't decide for someone else if someone needs professional help. But that's about, that's that's a tip that I give to them. So, um, yeah, I'm, once in a while, I'm also a little bit shocked about it. For example, uh, two weeks ago, I spoke with a young guy from Syria so he moved uh, to the Netherlands and his first uh, uh, sexual experience in the Netherlands with a guy was uh, under the influence of crystal meth and he never did drugs before. So this is something what we hear more often is that all the guys who have a lot of experience with drugs and chemsex, they invite younger guys without any experience. So that's really heavy to deal with also for me, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, it's shocking to to hear. Um, and in, in in which sense, what what kind of support can you can you give to that person? Um, yeah, we have a broad network uh, with uh, professionals now here in Amsterdam because we set up a kind of a meeting twice a year with uh, colleagues from eighteen different organizations. So, for example, if someone wants to talk with trauma. They were pissed. I have a name now. So it's really easy to get in contact with him or her because I have her phone number, I have her email address. So it's not a huge step to uh, look for support. But the only thing I can do is listening because I'm not uh, specialized in this topic. Um, Michael, when it comes to consent, what I understand is that awareness of what drugs do inside a chemsex setting is important for people to be able to navigate spaces more safely. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. I think that 
people have a really limited understanding of what they're getting into uh, when they start engaging in chemsex. I think that's actually true for all drug use. You know, I always give the example of, you know, where in a society where drugs is really highly stigmatized, which for myself growing up in Ireland, that was definitely the case. Like before I went to college, it was like, poor people do heroin and rich people do cocaine, you know? And I didn't realize that actually, no, in between that spectrum, there's actually a huge amount of drug use and that all the people that you didn't think did drugs actually do drugs, you know? And then you're thrown into this realm, this social realm where everybody's doing drugs and you've none of the skills or knowledge to navigate that effectively. And that's only made more complex when you layer sex on top of it. Is that a layer of sex on top of it? I don't know if that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> Depends what there's, you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a pun in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think I always give the example of my own first experience with chem sex. And it was so funny that Leon was talking about, you know, that story of like a young person kind of brought into this realm of chem sex without knowing it. Well, that actually was the case for me, you know. Being of the Gen Z generation, you know, I grew up on Grinder, you know, and that was my first entry to the world of sex, you know, and what you find is that you probably enter situations that you're not ready for. And that was definitely the truth for me and that situation where I was invited to a party at 11am on a bank holiday Monday. I should have really <laughs> had a better sense of what that meant. And... Yeah, and I think I left that experience feeling really, really deflated, you know, and it was only years after that I was able to reflect on that and realise that there's, like, complexities of navigating consent that aren't as easy as our traditional yes means yes and no means no, but rather, like, what are your capacities to actually be able to deliver that yes? And for me, it wasn't understanding how to establish my boundaries or understanding that if you're at a sex party, a lot of people will take that as their positive consent you know or as the permission to have sex with you and I found that really difficult to come to terms with because that was not the that was not the definition of consent that I had been fed or that I managed to develop from internet pages (laughs) how do you think we can make these settings safer I think uh I think there's like three things that we can really do when talking about maybe fostering a level of responsibility among our community, you know. I think in the past, uh, when we use the word responsibility around condom use and the moralization of that type of sexual health behavior actually resulted in making like really increased levels of stigma and made it maybe more difficult for people to apply this pro-social health behavior. So I think it's really important that we do it in a really shame-free way by not Bible bashing but I do think that we should increase awareness and education. I think we should focus on destigmatizing the conversation and addressing why it is so difficult for GBMSM to address sexual violence in our community. And finally, I think it's really important that we amplify the voices of victims or survivors of sexual violence so that they can both role model um, that there is a life after sexual violence and that that trauma does not need to define you, but also so that they can raise their experience to really just emphasize that this is not okay and that we need to address these issues. Yeah, I guess and to create empathy as well is, uh, mm-hmm. is vital to, you know, if you are sharing uh, stories, then people are more able to understand the context of why consent is important. If we just teaching people about consent but not explaining why and people have no no kind of anchor to to 
to link it to, then it's, uh, yeah, then it... Uh, yeah, but I've, I also think uh, a lot of men never learn this, eh? because it also has to do with uh, toxic masculinity. So you have to be sexual active the whole day, every day again and again and again. And also, um, yeah, what we see is that uh, a lot of guys who have fantasies about getting raped eh? because it's also a sexual fantasy. So what's the what's the border between okay and not okay? So what it's very uh, um, very fragile. So the border between uh, consent and not done. And I guess this comes to consensual non-consent in a mm. sense. And mm. uh, Michael, you've told me before of a, a story where you were in a um, in a drop-in. Uh, yeah, we had a drop-in session where we had a similar story come up where somebody expressed an interest in consensual non-consent, but specifically the use of G to put themselves under or to pass out, which first of all carries its own dangers in itself, but then the second of all of having somebody then act upon you in a sexual nature when you're in that state you know I will say I find it quite distressing when I first heard it but I also I guess had to remain compassionate and understanding of the perspective that person was bringing but I think in that case specifically at least when we dove more deeply into what was motivating that person to engage in that sexual behavior was ultimately a really low self-esteem and regard for their own bodily autonomy you know and what was motivating that sexual behavior was not the most positive source, you know, and that's also something to address, you know, as in I really believe in sexual liberation and exploring whatever you want to do, but at what risk do you want to explore that, you know, and I think these are questions we need to ask ourselves. Yeah, it's like, it's totally, because also for myself, I think, but also for a lot of people in the community, like this hookup culture, it's okay, but there's also a different thing and that's like whatever you want to do, but you don't have to have sex all the time. And for me as well, when I wasn't sober, it was yeah, just the normal thing to do and nobody uh, would ever tell you that there is like something different. So yeah, I think that's super important. You remember because you set up Queer and Sober, yeah. which is? Which is uh, Queer and Sober is an alcohol-free uh, queer community. We mainly host events in Amsterdam. It's focused on authentic connections, sober fun, and personal growth. Um, and yeah, uh, we just wanted to create it a space uh, where queer people can go and you don't have to take drugs or alcohol. And um, yeah, we have various people joining. It's not only sober people, but also sober curious people. Um, and yeah, it's going super well. And uh, yeah, a lot of people joining our, our events. What kind of things do you see that people need when they come forward to towards your community? Yeah, just a space where you also, that's, that's one thing you don't feel judged. And uh, I'm not going to say like eh, the Regelische Darstraat in Amsterdam is like full of judgment and everything, but it can also be a toxic thing what we do with each other. And it's sometimes with alcohol and drugs. Um, so I feel what we do is create this atmosphere which is really um, low-key, authentic. Uh, and yeah, that makes it yeah more chill and also yeah more you can go a little bit more into depth with each other than just... Uh, getting super drunk and high in uh, in a bar, which is fine if you want to do that, but there's also people who don't. I have to say, I've had so many events uh, this uh, this month so far, yep. uh, 
and uh, it's so hard to attend anything within the community without there being, you know, buckets of alcohol available yeah. as you walk in. Mm. Yeah, totally. I remember as well. Um, I think we just started, or yeah, of our, or actually, it was the weekend I had the idea like let's found queer and sober because like uh, there was pride, of course, in here in Amsterdam, and at the main stage you have uh, yeah a lot of things going on, and they did not even have one. 0.0% option and I'm super used to that to have my zero zero whatever yeah so when I was like uh, and they they did have now this year uh, and we had a boat this year as well on the kennel pride so there's a lot of uh, stuff uh, changed but yeah so this is uh, for me an example how it's even more normalized in our queer community to to drink and to use drugs yeah what do we need if we're looking at wider towards Horeca as well, towards the hospitality industry? What do, what do we need to be creating these safe spaces? Well, um, for me, it would be super cool. And that's one of our goals to, to create a place where you can uh, hang out and meet each other. And there's a co just a coffee place and alcohol free options that there's something like that. Uh, but definitely also, yeah, the, the menus, for example. I also remember, I don't want to be too negative but i'm gonna say it uh that a friend of mine went to to uh, one of the bars here in amsterdam and they say oh you either drink alcohol or you go home and i'm like <laughs> imagine saying that to someone who just goes back to a bar and is sober 90 days or something like that and yeah so we really uh, yeah menus also alcohol free menus in in more bars definitely because we're so cool what you're doing about creating yeah. this opportunity for people I mean yeah, when thanks. dealing with people who have issues with sex, so often the question is what's next you yeah. know and yeah. they see their whole social life dissolve away yeah. you know and to create opportunities where people can go out and socialize and have a good time yeah. but not have that reliant on drugs or alcohol is it's just such a needed service, yeah. really. Because when you take when you're involved in chemsex and you're quite deep in it, from what I understand is that you know your circle is quite fixed and you've got a, a you, you've got a. I think it's more that you lose your initial circle so often, yeah. you know, when your weekends or more revolves around chemsex. You know, you lose touch with those protective factors. Yeah, like and that's also what we hear because we also organize meetings for ex-users, so uh, twice a month. And one of the most uh, spoken topics is going about where can I meet other guys who don't use drugs. And, and also guys that start to realize, okay, now uh, I'm clean. But at that moment, the whole journey is starting because you have to build up a life and a sex life without drugs. And for some of them, it's really difficult because they have the choice, or oh, I'm staying uh, alone the whole weekend because they don't have any social uh, circle anymore, uh, besides of people of the game sex, uh, in the game sex scene. Uh, so for them, it's really difficult uh, yeah, to build up a sex life without drugs. Yeah, because I think, and we talked about it before, it's like connection is at two points is important. It's like, a lot of people crave connection when well they're on chem sex, but also when they stop, it's even more important. And yeah, I think that's why we focus so much on those connections as well. Yeah. And some of them never had sex without any su substances. Mm. So some yeah. of them started yeah. already with alcohol, poppers, uh, or smoking joints. So they had a sex life for 10 years under the influence of uh, substances. And then yeah, you have to build up a sober sex life. 
it must be so hard to rediscover sex after yeah. only knowing sex under yeah. influence. Yeah, I know yes. some guys, yeah. they are already clean for three or four years and they can't have uh, sex anymore. I had eight years from one service user that we were dealing with. Eight years he'd been without sex because he just couldn't re-engage. You know, many, many people who have had issues with chemsex and have moved or made any positive changes find that they actually really have to grieve their sex life for quite some time because you know you can quit alcohol you know if you're an alcoholic but you can't quit sex if you have issues with cam sex you know it just makes the world of triggers so much harder to navigate really so it's so important i guess then that not only the uh, initiatives like your runs exist but also that um, people are given that space at the beginning of their entry into the community yeah. so that they can begin to form positive, healthier habits from the yeah. beginning and not have to resolve problems later on. Yeah, definitely, because I, I, when I was thinking about, I think it's one year ago since we, we met and we've been in t- contact as well, and I was thinking even my own first experience in Amsterdam was with a lot of alcohol and also not very consensual. And... Um, but like a few years ago, I would just say like, oh yeah, that happened. But now I'm like, what the fuck? There's a few times that were not very consensual in my life as well. And yeah, that's just gives an example how important it is the work that you do. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with the, oh, well that happens like so many moments. Yeah. Of my uh, yeah, life. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember even on my Instagram poll, I asked the question, one week mm. of like who has experienced sexual violence you know and i had such a low response you know and then the next week i said who's been taken advantage of yeah and it was like over 80 yeah. percent of respondents you know and mm. it's funny that we're so resistant to questioning our negative sexual experiences further and recognizing them as potentially violent definitely yeah what is it that people should know before they start getting themselves into chemsex from a consent perspective, but also from a, an addiction perspective, from a, a social perspective? I think, first of, first of all, it's really important that you know which drugs you are taking and which combinations and what are the short-term and the long-term effects. That's really important. Uh, I also know from guys who build up a kind of close sex network, so that's much more safe than if you go to a grind-up party, what's going on starting at uh, Friday evening and ending at Tuesday morning. I think it's not really a safe environment, so it's really important that, first of all, if you take drugs, know what you are taking. So that's also the reason that we build uh, our website, chemsex.nl, so with a lot of information for users and ex-users, but also professionals, because also professionals don't know anything about drugs, a lot of professionals. So for them it's also really important to know which drugs are taken and what are the effects, because then you can start a conversation. And perhaps good then to say that, for instance, GHB, there's a strong uh, chance of passing out and that creates vulnerability with... Yeah, uh, but it's... it's, it's v- very popular because most people starting with uh, with uh, stimulants such as uh, 3MMC or cocaine or crystal meth, uh, but they also need a downer, so they choose for GHB and GBL. So mostly it's a combination of, and I also spoke with guys who, 
who never had issues with uh, GHB, but yeah, because they took too much 3MMC, they had an overdose. It was their first experience, but they don't realize it was GHB. They still think it's a combination of drugs, and they th- still think, yeah, okay, it happened, and whatever. What do you think people need to know? About GHB? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, also, if you want to. If yeah. Where can I get it? <laughs> Uh, what do you think people need to know with regards uh, if somebody's at a party and somebody else? Uh, how should you interact with other people in a chemsex party, and how sh- how can you register perhaps consent? What should you look out for to make sure that somebody is consenting? Will I take this on? <laughs> I mean, there's no straight answer about it. No. You know, and there's no secret to secret recipe to not be sexually assaulted unfortunately I think people don't like to accept the fact that if we're going to make a sexual assault free world there's really massive cultural shifts that need to happen and that's unfortunately not a nice answer because that's not going to happen in our generation however in the meantime while we're trying to make those cultural shifts like around the hypersexuality of our community and the normalization of sexual violence while we're trying to work on those things I guess it's about educating people about where those risks lie, you know, when it comes to sexual violence. Um, And I think for newbies of any ages, you know, a newbie can be 18 or they can be 80. Uh, I see both in my work. Entering these sexual scenes for the first time, it's about understanding what those different settings are. Like, is it a cruising area? Is it the sauna? Is it a chemsex party? Is it a chemsex party where you know the people? Is it a chemsex party where you don't know any of the people? You know, each of these different sexual settings and queer landscapes come with their own risks, you know, and the better that you know those risks, the better you can personally navigate them. But ultimately, you know, if you don't navigate those things appropriately or effectively I think it's important to always recognize that it's not your fault you know that there is people in this world who will perpetrate violence against you but in the meantime let's try to raise awareness about how we can reduce it where we can and how can your partner check in on you in during a during a chemsex uh, party for instance I, I think it's really about constant check-in you know especially when g communication 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 yeah it's like you know and that communication can be both verbal but also non-verbal you know and recognizing if your partner is in discomfort or if your partner has passed out you know as in these are things that are you know if somebody's incapacitated you should not be having sex with them yeah but also know this uh, some people they use a list of uh, of the names uh, uh, of the people who involved this uh, party and they also write down which drugs are taken at what time like a g chart yeah but you can imagine after a couple of hours or maybe days it's uh, it's not really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be a long list yeah, yeah. it's a very long list yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michael and Leon, what have you both learned when it comes to uh, consent in your outreach work? Because Leon, uh, I'll give some backstory. When I first spoke with you three years ago, mm-hmm. oh, it was a long time. Yeah. When I first spoke with you three years ago, there was the discussion was really getting started and there was actually no discussion. And even uh, at some meetings that uh, we've both attended together, there's, uh, there's not been discussion around consent. So what is the change that you've seen in the three years? Uh, I think the change that I saw, what I see is that... Uh, 
game six is more normalized. So if you talk about three years ago, uh, two, 2020 uh, Corona, uh, most guys who are contacting us right now, uh, they uh, started to get issues uh, during Corona. Uh, so uh, what happened, what changed is that I think this is a topping, hashtag me too. Uh, it's a topic what's more popular right now. So also people start to talk about it. But what I see and what also what I hear from the gay community, there it's still a stigma. People don't talk about it because they feel ashamed. So if it happened to someone, this person feels ashamed and is still thinking, I, I don't want to talk about it because I use drugs, so it's my own fault. And that's something I hear every time again. So what is changing right now is that more and more professionals knows about it. And so they also start to talk about it. And I think that's the most important thing we can do. Just talk about this topic in our community. Yeah. I would also say that to the people listening, to your friends as well, because I have so many stories of my own friends tell me stories about those parties. And then uh, they say, yeah, oh, well, that happened. I passed out and there was a finger inside me. Um, Stuff like that. Um, And yeah, I think... As a community, we also should have the conversation, not only organizations, but also to our friends ourselves. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree with that. The conversation can start in your immediate circle, you know. It's yeah. Your circle of care can sometimes be quite small, but that can be the most effective change that you can really implement. But I guess to go back to the question um, about what I've learned around this topic consent and camp sex with both running a service but also working with you for the last two years is the resistance uh, of our community to address this conversation around how commonplace to be taken advantage of is or to have your boundaries pushed is you know and I think that ultimately stems from the fact that we've fought for so long to be accepted by wider society that gotten to a point where we're not willing to look at the parts of our community that are not so beautiful you know and I think we need to and I think if we don't address this ultimately the cycle of sexual violence is only going to self-perpetuate itself and yeah I think we just need to bring this conversation to the forefront of our community. So more discussion within the community on consent, what it looks like to have your boundaries broken and, and the risks in certain places and with certain substances. What can organizations do to create a stronger support network and landscape for, for the community? I think all organizations who work with queer people have to know about this topic. Really? It's a very short answer. No brainer. It seems, of course, so vital that when people are so in such a position that they they really need support and that they're coming forward to seek that support, but there's no awareness around some of the more uh, hidden parts of the chemsex uh, landscape or chemsex experience, like consent, consent breaking that if somebody has come forward and they have that sexual trauma and they're not able to, to, to share that, then yeah, this is also then a risk for, for them going forwards and, and prevents them from finding a healthy way out of... I uh, will give them your email address and I will uh, <laughs> give them information about your organization because you are the first organization in the Netherlands, as far as I know, because this was a really heavy 
topic for mm-hmm. a couple of years uh, because I'm doing this job already for uh, 12 years. And always uh, it was the same question. If people quit with camp sex, they had the question, where can I meet other guys? So I can send them to queer and sober. And also if they had have this experience, I can send them to you. And I'm really happy with it because before I didn't know what to do. I will just know. The email, by the way, is info at menaswell.no. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's also within Korean and Sober that we uh, talk about men as well. And like, yeah, like you said as well, almost everyone says, oh, yeah, I, I also have this and this. And then people start to talk to me. I'm like, well, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's obvious. We definitely need to talk about this more. I'm sure about it that that uh, wage of numbers, uh, it's much higher as, mm. as we know. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah. Think, I think it happened to a lot of queer people. Yeah, yeah. Sure about uh, it. Belgium data says that it's eighty percent of LGBTQIA plus in their lifetime. So that would not surprise me. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, yeah, I also know from a research, a Dutch research from two thousand nineteen uh, in the south of the Netherlands, nineteen uh, percent had had this kind of experience, and I'm sure about it that a lot of people don't talk about it because they feel ashamed about it. Yeah, so it's so important to be breaking shame and providing community and working collaboratively together. Yeah, and I guess if there's any professionals listening to this podcast, you know, I think some of the things that I would really have to emphasize, like like Leon said, having initially an understanding of what these topics are, like as in, you know, it doesn't really help any service user when the first question is, what is chemsex, you know? You should have that understanding. And then after that is having a non- non-judgmental approach and an open mindset and then finally knowing how to navigate that conversation effectively you know I think one of the big conversations I have with professionals is not approaching somebody with a question like oh have you been sexually assaulted you know it's not actually going to elicit the response that you want or not going to foster somebody uh, into having that conversation with you or the same thing with oh do you engage in chemsex you're probably not going to get the response you wanted you know so because of that shame you know because of that shame and stigma thank you uh, it's like ha- having the understanding of are you happy with your sex life right now you know when was the last time you had sober sex has anything happened in your sex life recently that has caused you trouble you know or that you're worried about having more kind of open-ended questions like this may yeah increase your ability to reach out to people. Is there anything else to add? We've covered quite a lot so far. We have the need to collaborate, we have the need to... Yeah, m- maybe we have to mention again also the added value there, because people uh, choosing for camp sex because it has added value, because you're going for long-term sex, intense sex and groundbreaking sex. It's really important to mention this, because otherwise we are also stigmatizing yeah, and I think the combination sex and drugs, because I think it isn't a, it isn't an issue, but what we see is that more and more people are losing control. Mm. I, I think it's really important to mention that there's a spectrum between problematic and non-problematic chemsex. You know, and it can be really difficult as a service provider to see the non-problematic side sometimes because we only see the worst. You know, mm-hmm. and I guess like. Upon that spectrum, there's people who will engage in chemsex and the benefits will always outweigh the harms. And good luck to anybody whose journey is that. And I think you're very lucky. Um, and I think some of those like protective factors that help somebody to achieve a non-problematic relationship with chemsex include things like, you know, an understanding of 
uh, harm reduction strategies, you know, um, understanding how to set appropriate boundaries for yourself and for others. And then finally, I think the most important part of having a non-problematic relationship with chemsex is, you know, having an appreciation for sober life and activities, you know, never losing sight of sobriety and that sober living is actually the part of your life that gives you the most meaning. Yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, it kind of starts, or maybe not starts, but like grinder as well uh, can be quite toxic and can be quite addictive and can be... Uh, not a nice place to be on a lot of times and I think more people than we know are maybe not feeling super happy being too many too much time on grinder and I think it starts there as well and then it's going back to that connection because yeah deep down I think uh, people crave connection and intimacy more than um, sex sometimes and yeah to to spread uh, the knowledge that there are spaces where you can meet other people without, uh, yeah, having to uh, top each other on Grindr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 but also that most guys start to realize after they quit with their game sex experiences yeah. that they start to realize that um, yeah, they were looking for intimacy instead of mm. hardcore yeah. long-term sex. Yeah, yeah. I heard it so, so much. So yeah. they are looking for a steady relationship on a game sex party. Yeah. yeah. It could happen. Maybe dreams do come true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a supermarket. It's, it's just a camp sex party. But, uh, <laughs> you know, despite being somebody who has actively used Grindr in uh, my well, time. Like, me too. It's just very um, recent that I'm like, I should, I should be off yeah, yeah, but I think, yeah, I've also been coming to terms with the prob- problematic nature of Grindr. You know, I yeah. kind of liken it sometimes to like having a gambling app in your pocket at all Mm. times you know and the thing about this gambling app is that when you pull you know the lever you win the jackpot every single time you know and it's totally gamified the way that we approach sex you know and you learn how to market yourself appropriately you know and how to navigate the conversation ultimately you know that it can be an addictive compulsive process also the the younger generation uh, so i spoke with uh, professionals who were working at the yellyneck and they told me that they have to go with their clients to Café de Prick because these guys don't know how to socialize. They don't know how to contact, uh, how to make contact with someone else because they were, were on Grindr for years. And also what we see is that people who want to quit or are sober, uh, they are asking us every time, every meeting, it's a topic, can I use dating apps, yes or no? Mm. And I think I think it's really uh, tricky if you go on dating apps again because uh, the combination sex and drugs it's part in your in your brain so you you can't uh, um, break break it yeah mm. you can't break. I'm seeing like this parallel between the addiction of uh, substances and addiction of the app as well, uh, yeah. of apps as well. It's a combination. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. It seems like we're really being conditioned to be. Uh, enslaved to, uh, be, it seems like we're being conditioned to be yeah. slave to the grinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's the dopamine, right? It's yeah, like yeah, dopamine. Exactly. It's, it's giving you so much dopamine, uh, the, the the likes from other people, but also the sex. So it's yeah. like it's a jackpot, the dopamine yeah. jackpot. It's yeah. really velvet rage theory as well. You know, yes. needing yeah. validation. Uh, yeah, I pretend I read that. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy you a copy. Yeah, I'm Gen Z. I have a couple TikTok form. <laughs> I'll send you the Audible file. Yeah, yeah you, Can you do Perfect. Audible? Straight, <laughs> or did you read Straight Jacket? Oh, no, I can't read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, really nice. It's, it's British. <laughs> it's British, actually. It's really nice. Yeah. No, it's a super useful book. I think I bought that book for maybe five different people now and wow, recommended yeah. it to, it's the Bible that yeah, I go to definitely. now. And people, I can yeah. spot as well, yeah. you know, people come to, I will cross paths with people and I can see patterns, that, you know, and I will just tell them, go and buy this book. And often they come back to me a month later or two months later and they say, thank you so much for that book. I recommended yeah. it to 10 of my friends. Mm -hmm. So I know that there's a good market that the author is making a lot of money in the Netherlands right now. Yeah, he, there's a Dutch version of yeah. it yeah. also now. I, f I think he came even to Amsterdam uh, to promote it a few years ago. Oh, Ma really? Matthew yeah. Todd's. Yeah. No, oh, th no, this is the straight jacket one. I think Matthew Todd. Oh, sorry. Ellen Downs. Yeah. Ellen yeah. yeah. Downs, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good, uh, really good book to check out. Yeah. You're going to have a copy. Yeah, I promise. <laughs> okay, <that's> <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. last words? Yeah, I really think uh, as a community, we also have to talk about toxic masculinity. That's something I see a lot of guys, including myself, uh, dealing with this strange thing. Uh, because I'm still surprised when I, when I was on dating apps, when I read texts like straight acting or mask for mask mm. or yeah. this, this kind of terms. I think we also have to communicate about this because I think it has to do with consent also. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and uh, bottom shaming yeah, as well. Bottom yeah. shaming. Yeah. I, I think that like hypersexuality comes from, you know, that relationship with hypermasculinity that that gay people have. Oh, I could be wrong, but I think it might have been Susan Sontag who said that gay men have one of the best understandings of masculinity, despite how uh, straight men might protest yeah. in that statement. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like, you know, we... We think of ourselves as so separate than the straight male population, but we ultimately fall victim to so many of the same issues that masculinity presents. Yeah, I guess this border crossing is also an, enact an uh, enactment of masculinity in a, in a sense because yeah, I've come back to men being typically uh, portrayed as dominant and as sexually assertive. Uh, yeah. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for coming today. It was really nice to delve into the world of chems a little bit and also of sobriety. Um, if anybody listening wants to check out Queer and Sober, uh, then uh, they have the podcast you can go to. Yeah, Queer Sobercast is uh, on Instagram. And if you want to check the meetups or the um, events, Queer Sober Club at Instagram. Nice, safe, sober spaces. Yes, definitely. Very and good. it's also when you're not sober and curious, you just come along. Great. Anyone with any problems can go to Leonid Mainline. Yes, uh, watch our website, uh, mainline.nl. So you find information about advice and support and also our meetings for ex-users. Um, people can contact us and we will reach out as soon as possible. And if you want more information about chems, you can go to chemsex.nl. Yes, yes, there's a lot of information about the different drugs, the combinations, uh, harm reduction tips. Um, if you want to quit, there's also a card with professionals who know what chemsex is and don't judge chemsex. So that's also very important. Because if you start to look for help and your professional is telling you how bad drugs are, I think you will skip this professional help. Super important. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Marvelous. Thank you so much. Thank you.
In the next episode, I'll be speaking with professionals in the field, Eva Bikinich from Centrum Sexorfeld, Willy van Berlo from Rutgers, and Joey Waldstra from GGD Amsterdam. Een Maker District podcast.